You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. With this proverb, the ancient Hebrew sages defined the value of friendship. Similarly, the Stoic Marcus Aurelius began his meditations enumerating the friends to whom he owed particular traits of character and wisdom. However, we need not return to ancient times to see this venerable model of enriching friendship lived out. A circle of friends like this flourished only a few generations ago in England, and included two of the best-known Christian writers of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. This circle of friends was called the Inklings, and their friendship proved to be the fertile ground for art and ideas that still entertain and enlighten our world. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Colin Durier, writer, researcher, and author of The Oxford Inklings, Lewis, Tolkien, and Their Circle. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, sir. Thank you very much for having me on your program. Well, I appreciate you accepting the invitation, sir. I'm particularly excited about this one because I've, uh, I've been an Inkling fan for, oh, for as long as I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose we ought first to define our topic. Um, could you explain who and what the Inklings were? Well, first of all, um, it's clear that the Inklings have an odd name, the Inklings, which was uh, it, it was it was um, a kind of nickname, and the word, of course, Inklings means that you have some kind of intuition about perhaps the the mystical or the unusual, and um, and it has a, a, an allusion to ink as well, because the, the members of the Inklings were people who had a tendency to write, as, as C.S. Lewis said. Um, they also shared um, a common Christian faith, which was quite, quite varied. It ranged from being very orthodox to being pretty esoteric. Um, but somehow they all got along um, despite their differences. And in fact, the differences seemed to help because, uh, as you say, iron sharpens iron and um, and if you just surround yourself with people that are clones of yourself, you're not likely to get very far. But um, they were very, they were very individual bunch of people. And uh, Inkl the Inklings is associated with Oxford and Oxford University. But in fact, they weren't all Oxford academics. They were a mixture. Quite a few of them were academics from the university. But um, others were um, professional people of various sorts, from a, from a retired army major to uh, to the to C.S. Lewis's family doctor. One of the uh, one of the things that's often noted uh, when when the Inklings are discussed is their connection to really well-known figures like uh, like Lewis and Tolkien, and so often we can get the get the notion that these are merely, I guess, adjuncts of the more famous members. Um, so. You've written extensively on both Lewis and Tolkien, so why write a book about the Inklings as a group? Why are they as a group worth considering and not just as an interesting passage in a Tolkien biography or a Lewis biography? Well, um, both Tolkien and Lewis found the group to be very, very important for themselves. Uh, they greatly valued friendship. And also there were um, many other members who were... Um, very special in their own right, even though they're not as well known as Tolkien and Lewis. There was a writer called Charles Williams who wrote um, Spiritual Shockers, a, a series of, not a series, but a, a number of novels, seven novels in all, 
which were very gothic and explored um, esoteric themes like um, tarot cards and um, the search for the Holy Grail and so on, which actually seem much more topical now than they did when they were written, you know, with, with the kind of um, films we get now of The Walking Dead and, and um, hmm. uh, various others and, and zombies and uh, uh, um, films which elicit deep emotions um, in, in very much a romantic tra tradition. Of, um, of exploring the depths of human experience and the extremes of it. Um, and then there was Owen Barfield, who was very much a philosopher, and um, he started off being very um, um, accessible because he wrote a, a very good children's story, um, but he got very much tied up into quite esoteric thinking, and it was only after he retired that he, um, he started to write again and, and did a lot of um, travel to um, USA, actually speaking. But, he, but he, he, he got better at explaining his ideas as he got, got older and as he approached almost 100 years of life. Um, sadly, he died short, just short of his 100th birthday. And there was others as well, like C.S. was his brother, who was a writer. Uh, this was the army major. Um, he wrote very well. Um, he, he kept beautiful diaries. Um, and what, what, what I should be saying is that they, um, the group was very much a part of um, um, the way that um, Lewis and Tolkien felt that human beings should be, that they weren't isolated individuals, but mm. we were meant to be in community and that our friends um, actually, um, and, and not only our friends, but people we don't always get on with, um, bring, bring things out of us, um, in fact, take us out of ourselves uh, out of the prison of ourselves and enlarge our whole view of the world and reality and human life and nature and everything and books. <laughs> Excellent. Well, in your introduction and, and uh, as you were uh, defining them at the beginning, um, in the introduction of your book, you quote uh, Lewis's own sort of definition of the Inklings and their, their membership qualifications uh, as a tendency to write and Christianity. Um, I'd like to camp out a little while on these two and starting with Christianity. What role did the Christian faith play in the formation of the Inklings little circle and in their ongoing identity? It, um, it, Christianity was utterly foundational to, to the Inklings. As I said, they were very varied in, in um in their Christian beliefs, but not all of the um, large group of the Inklings, because at the beginning it was very small, just half a dozen, and, and towards the end of its life as a group, it, it had as many as uh, 15 or 20 people um, um, coming and going to the group. Um, but um, for, for almost all the mem members, and certainly the core members, Christianity was very basic as a foundation. And in fact, the group wouldn't have existed without it. Lewis and Tolkien had lots of friends, they had lots of groups of friends. But what was special about the um, Inklings is that they were um, fellow Christians. In fact, Lewis felt that the, um, the group of friends had been brought together by, by God himself. You know, this was a wonderful gift. He talked about the gift of friendship. And the irony is that um, um, as the group took form, before it became the Inklings, because Inklings was based uh, around Lewis's friends, um, um, in the end, the only person who wasn't a Christian was C.S. Lewis himself. Um, all the rest were. His brother Warren had, had returned to faith just a few months before C.S. Lewis did. But it was after Lewis actually um, gave in and um, accepted 
Christian belief after reluctantly a while before that accepting that there was a, a God behind the universe who actually didn't, didn't just sit back but who was engaged in, in what went on in the universe and in the world and in human affairs. Mm. So this was this group of people was not only interest, in, instrumental and influential in, in the writing side of Lewis and I guess Tolkien's life as well but also in Lewis's even coming to faith. That's right. And uh, it is a, the, the Lewis's own coming to faith um, is a long and involved story, which he tells in his book, Surprised by Joy, which I recommend. Um, it, it tells the first half of his life and how he, he reluctantly became a Christian, and very much through an experience which he calls by the technical name of joy, which was um, an, a longing, an inconsolable longing that nothing would satisfy, no human experience, not even the best books that he could find or, or um, great paintings or music or, or anything else that he was attracted to. Nothing would satisfy that longing until he, he found God, um, an unknown God behind the universe, which he eventually realized was the God which is um, explained through um, the incarnation of Christ and Christ's appearance in first century Palestine, where people could talk to him, hear his stories and teaching and touch him and have meals with him and so on. Uh, God with us. Um, I thought we were. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you touched on this as well. Um, uh, I'm also interested in the diversity of the Inklings' Christianity. Uh, you, you talked about how they're, you know, they were they were very different, and that did produce tensions. Um, I guess the tension between Tolkien's Roman Roman Catholic faith and Lewis's Anglicanism is is probably better known, but the circle also included uh, Owen Barfield, who, as you mentioned, uh, had kind of mystical tendencies. He was an uh, anthroposophist, if, yeah. if if that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, yeah, well done. And... It took me just to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Charles Williams, who seems to have crossed the line from the mystical to the magical sometimes. Um, got very close to the boundary, at least, yes. So... What kinds of tension, fruitful or otherwise, did these kinds of diversity make? Well, um, part of the diversity is a very human one in that, you know, people do have their disagreements, even the best of friends mm. in the closest of relationships. Uh, but the, the, uh, the, the group were committed to each other. They, they stuck it out. They didn't just take offense. But they took, uh, they took criticism on the jaw, and they gave criticism firmly, whether a lot of it was to do with their writing and, and to do with how well they were communicating um, in terms of, um, of Christian faith um, or even in terms of um, understanding what the world is like, you know, on a very much broader, broader, broader terms than simply putting over a Christian message. Um, they, were, they were stern critics each other, and they wanted to achieve writings that they that they could enjoy. They wanted each other to be writing the kind of books that they liked to read. And um, so um, um, this led to some of the tensions. You mentioned about the difference between Lewis as a as a Anglican and, and Tolkien as a Roman Catholic. It actually went deeper than that because um, Tolkien was very aware that uh, Lewis froze from, from the north of Ireland. So he was a Ulster Protestant. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, 
In fact, um, in one bilious moment, um, Tolkien spoke of his um, ulterior motive in <laughs> things. Um, and then uh, with Owen Barfield, um, the whole friendship between Barfield and Lewis, which was very close, was was based upon opposition. They they habitually disagreed with each other, even though they they were, as Lewis put it, they were looking in the same direction. They were seeing and enjoying the same things, but their their whole take of, on it was different. And, and the sparks that flew between them actually helped them both in their growth as hmm. as thinkers and as writers. And uh, um, Lewis with his Christianity, well, before his Christianity, but breaking up the ground ready for when he was ready for um, um, accepting Christianity. And, and Barfield, his own views, um, esoteric views, were challenged by Lewis. Say his whole view of how we get knowledge through the imagination. Um, which was very influential on the Inklings, but it was something where they, they had major disagreements hmm. because um, Barfield thought that you could actually um, know truth through the imagination, whereas, whereas Lewis said that the imagination is something which creates conditions which help us to come to the truth, but we need our, um, it's our reasoning, our thinking, which actually leads to the, um, to the final step of, um, of understanding the truth and so on. So he saw the imagination and reason working together, whereas Barfield was much more committed to the imagination as the key to everything. A lot like um, postmodernist thought now, actually. Mm. Um, and the surprising thing is, though, although Lewis was very much, in some senses, was quite a rationalist, um, and Barfield certainly was hard-hitting in his logic, they both have a great appeal to um, a postmodern world. Um, mm. But... And my, my view is that is that is, is that uh, is that is because they were actually pre-modernists. They were looking back to the um, to say the medieval world, the kind of universe that was, as it was perceived and understood by by people hundreds of years ago, um, but not as a not as a, a regressive thing, but as a vision of reality, which actually. Um, helped us to have a perspective on our own world and uh, our own strengths and weaknesses. And um, this is something that they very much encouraged. And um, so they were remarkable people. And um, so the kind of conflicts that went on um, were actually very wholesome and, um, and important um, uh, to the growth and to the kind of books that ended up being produced, like Lord of the Rings and... Uh, um, near Christianity and uh, the, the line which uh, the wardrobe and the Narnian stories and um, science fiction stories that Lewis wrote and much else. Lewis also noted that the Inklings were marked by a tendency to write. So we're, we're I guess, more familiar with Lewis and Tolkien, but uh, what sorts of writings did the different Inklings pursue and what pieces that were read and critiqued on especially those Thursday night meetings might we have heard or read or or might be able to to find in print? Yeah, much of what they um, read to each other is is available in print now. The um, much of the Lord of the Rings was read to the group, uh, particularly in the wartime years, um, and in the in the nineteen thirties, um, much of the Hobbit was was read to the group as well. And this was before publication. Um, C.S. Lewis read his first science fiction story out of the silent planet in the 30s to the group, and it was very well received, Tolkien reported. And he, Tolkien himself, who was a very stern critic, um, enjoyed 
the book very much and um, mm. I'm sure he there's something about it about the fact that the central character Ransom it was partly based upon Tolkien Tolkien himself as a as a philologist as a kind of linguist um, that, that must have tickled him and um, mm. and even allowed the fact that um, Lewis had some elements of a rudimentary language or languages in the story. Um, Tolkien was very much a perfectionist in creating um, um, uh, other languages, you know, as we find in the Lord of the Rings and the earlier accounts. Um, and then there was um, there was much poetry that we we may not have um, uh, may not have be published and available um, in the early years. The um, that Inklings was a very small group at the beginning was, um, was very much interested in, in poetry writing and several of them had ambitions to be major poets um, mm -hmm. in Barfield wrote a lot of poetry Lewis, um, Tolkien and um, um, the, but the, the, it might be more um, ordinary if you call, can call this ordinary the doctor in the group um, Humphrey Havard on one occasion wrote uh, an account of rock climbing and the, and and uh, Lewis reported that it was so. Um, it's either Lewis or his brother reported that um, it was so real that um, made the hair stand on end <laughs> to to listen to it. Um, and um, so there was non-fiction as well as fiction that was read. Um, Lewis's brother Warren, who had developed a great interest in French social history, particularly of the 17th century, and he read some of his. Um, um, his books in preparation to the group, and um, Tolkien particularly liked what um, what he heard. Um, so it was a wide variety of writing, uh, the, the, and they were um, they were doing things which wouldn't normally happen, say, in an ordinary English um, class, you know, English literature class. They were actually helping each other to write better as storytellers, to write the kind of books which would grip people, and, um, and because they were all trying it trying it themselves, you know, most of them anyway, that they knew what it was like to, to be trying to write it as well as just sitting back in an armchair and making comments about other people's um, fiction. Um, so um, Diana Glyer has written a brilliant book on the on the way that the um, Inklings helped each other and encouraged each other called The, the Company They Keep. keep. Um, so that's, that, that gives a very good insight into the dynamics of the writing group, which as you said, did. Take, tend to take place on Thursday evenings. The group also met um, probably more from the, the World, War, World War II years, but they also met in pub on uh, Tuesday lunch times, where it wouldn't be for reading, it would be for conversation and having uh, swapping news about the day and telling jokes and enjoying beer and the meal. Mm. Um, so there were two kinds of meetings. But um, yes, the, this is part of the fascinating story of this group made up of um, very individual and interesting people rather than some dry dry boned um, Oxford Don it was the uh, was it the the eagle and child the burden baby was that the Tuesday mornings yes yes that was one of the favorite pubs they actually like the, um, the the inklings actually liked quite a few of the Oxford pubs um, sometimes they do walking tours and you can go around and you can point out quite a few different um, pubs which played an important part in the lives of the Inklings. But the Eagle and Child in St. Giles, which is a very wide wide street in Oxford, um, was one of the popular places for many years. Um, Lewis particularly liked the cider that they sold there. Hmm. I don't know if you have 
you don't really have much cider in America, but it's uh, it's made from apple and it's uh, it's a very um, it's a very refreshing drink. Um, and uh, um, and the, the the draft beer as well they liked and um, the convivial atmosphere where we would find it hard now because it would have been full of tobacco smoke and we we <laughs> to knowing how dangerous um, tobacco smoke is. But, uh, at that time, it wasn't uh, that that kind of danger wasn't noticed. <laughs> well, anyone who's read the first couple of chapters of The Hobbit knows how fond Tolkien was of of the uh, the pipe weed. That's right. Yes. <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, the the Inklings as as a writing group, and as uh, not only were they just sort of literary critics giving responses, but they're also writers giving responses. Um, do we know of any things in uh, the published Inkling writings that we might be familiar with that were? written in revision or in response to critique that came out of the, the group? Um, I'm just trying to think of an example. Um, if you think of the, the fact that the, the inkling started around the friendship between Lewis and Tolkien, which seems to be the case, um, you can actually, in the, British, in the um, uh, Bodleian Library in Oxford, um, you can actually look at manuscripts which show the mark of Lewis's um, uh, corrections um, to Tolkien. Huh. Um, this one, uh, and one in particular, it was a prose version of, it was either a prose version or an unfinished um, verse version of, the, of Beowulf. And um, you could see um, Lewis's markings on that, and um, yeah. which um, indicates that, that um, Tolkien, who's, uh, who seemed to be very reticent about taking criticism, did respond to um, uh, to Lewis's um, uh, suggestions, and that would have been in the context of reading to each other as well. They they um, uh, they, they very much read to each other, and, that, and the inklings grew out of that reading. Actually, um, sometimes they, they they lent each other um, manuscripts as well, and um, um, Lewis on one occasion did a big critique of one of um, uh, Tolkien's early poems based around um, the earlier ages of Middle Middle Earth, a beautiful poem mm -hmm. called Beren and Luthien about the love story between um, a, a mortal and, uh, and an elf. And, um, and, and he pretended to be three or four different literary critics, all with ponderous German name, surnames, <laughs> and, and, and they would each um, bring in their criticisms of, of something that uh, Tolkien had um, written. And the idea was um, Lewis knew his friend very well, and he thought that this would make it more the criticism more palatable. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, it did. but their poetic style was very different. Um, you know, when Lewis corrected Tolkien, it didn't sound at all like Tolkien at all. Um, Lewis tended to write very stylistic poetry, whereas Tolkien was very happy to um, to write very accessible um, um, narrative poems. And um, um, he, he, his, his, the strength of them was the the stories that were embodied in them and the the insights. Whereas um, Lewis was much more of a craftsman, and uh, um, and consequently, perhaps his his poems are not so um, uh, not not read so much as as, uh, as uh, Tolkien's are. Perhaps not. <laughs> well, the Inklings were not only writers, uh, they were also, uh, as we've said, they were readers. And um, I know at least uh, at least Tolkien and Lewis um, 
at, at one point had a, had an agreement to write the sorts of books that they enjoyed to read, but also that um, Charles Williams was invited to um, to join the circle on the strength of them uh, multiple members of the group having read his book, uh, one of his books, and enjoyed it very much. So, mm-hmm. what sorts of things did they like to read, and how did this taste in reading perhaps shape the choices of of what they wrote? Well, the the, um, the roots of the kind of books they they liked go back to their childhoods when they were reading the classics of children's literature, um, you know, Alice in Wonderland and. Um, uh, the the stories that uh, were gathered by um, uh, uh, Andrew um, Lang mm-hmm. in the blue and green and so on fairy story tale book collections, mm-hmm. um, and what they eventually realised was that um, that these kind of stories of fantasy and what they called romance, uh, dealing with deep human emotions that 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 took you over the horizon of the world into another world, um, was that they were they'd be, been relegated to children's literature. And in fact, if you go further back in time to the Middle Ages and the early Middle Ages and so on, that actually fantasy was for was written for um, and composed for adults. And that's what they wanted to bring back when they were saying that they wanted to write the kind of books that they liked. It was really um, fantasy, a fairy tale, romance, but actually for an adult rather than a children's readership. Not that they were averse to writing with children. Tolkien wrote, he managed to do The Hobbit, which pleased a lot of children. And Lewis managed to write um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the other Narnian stories, which have pleased children all over the world. Um, but um, the, 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 the challenge they made to each other to write the kind of books that they like to read um, was very much with an eye to writing popular fiction for adults, which is quite remarkable. They were two stuffy academics. Um, um, and they hadn't even at that time published a lot of academic writing, um, um, but they decided that they were going to write popular fiction for adults, which is <laughs> a pretty considerable challenge. I'm sure they didn't realize what a challenge it was at that stage, but uh, Lewis got on and wrote um, first science fiction story out of the silent planet. And at that time, science fiction was regarded more or less as pulp fiction. Mm. Um, but they but they were sensible enough to realize that... Um, that the science fiction stories were actually dealing with the themes of an older world, uh, dealing with myth and uh, and the whole mystery of the uh, of, of space and and travel into unknown worlds, all those elements which um, they'd found in the stories stories from the Middle Ages and so on and back into classical times. Um, but they they liked reading John Buchan, who also was regarded as a lowbrow author, mm-hmm. you know, Thirty Steps and books like that, yeah. with well told plots. Um, um, I'm not sure how familiar that they were with Dorothy L. Sayers, um, you know, with her detective stories. Um, um, I know that Lewis read some of them because he mentions he mentions them when he when he gave a farewell message at Dorothy L. Sayers' funeral. Mm. Um, mentions Lord Peter Whimsey, the great detective of the stories. Um, but they used to invite, sometimes invite um, contemporary writers along to the Inklings, like E.R. Edison. Mm. Uh, they invited him along, and um, um, so there was a wide variety. Uh, both, I mean, Lewis was incredibly well read. Um, he was uh, the most well read of all the members. But Tolkien himself uh, read well, and he read a lot of science fiction. For example, um, he was well up on on that, and um, and he he wrote. He actually attempted a little bit of science fiction himself in 
um, he wrote a, he started to write a story um, called the Notion Club Papers, which was um, uh, a very um, a very intellectualized story, but it was um, was dealing with um, in a way it was dealing with science fiction. So there, there was a wide variety. So you could see they had lots to talk about. They, they would be discovering. And the, and the novel by Charles Williams, who you mentioned, The Place of the Lion, what attracted them was the mix of Genesis and Plato. Hmm. You know, they're, they're all well-read in Genesis and Plato. But to have this, uh, this author bringing them together in a modern novel, a contemporary novel, um, that was appealing to adults, you know, it was one of the, they, they could see this book and uh, they could see that this is the kind of book they liked to read. And it was that kind of book that they would like to write, to, to some extent, of course. Um, Tolkien wasn't particularly keen on, on Williams's um, uh, parents dabbling in the, in the occult and, uh, and um, in, in magic and everything. Um, but um, so they, they were looking around. They were very um, attentive to the kind of books they liked and also the kind of books that they wanted to write for adults, which they felt... Um, would embody the kind of values that they wanted to promote, and to do to do what might be called the re-enchanting of the world. Hmm. They felt that the, the modernism and um, particularly scientism had, uh, was systematically taking all the values out of the world, such as human valety, uh, values and qualities of even of colour and taste and sound, um, and um, they wanted to re-enchant the world. They wanted to bring back its full meaning. Um, that had been put there, as they believed, by um, the creator of the universe. And their job was to be sub-creators that would be making, in the image of the making that God did, um, which was the subject of one of, um, of Tolkien's important um, essays uh, on fairy stories, which he gave as a lecture at St. Andrews. But also probably arose out of the kind of discussions that the Inklings were having. And I suspect that was, that was true of a lot of what they wrote in the in the 1930s, in particular, um, academic material, um, uh, as well as um, as more popular essays and things. Mm. I mean, you can certainly see that. Uh, I think in uh, in Tolkien's essay on Beowulf, the monsters and the critics, where, yes. where one of the biggest things that he's taking on is uh, an earlier critical tendency to uh, simply dissect Beowulf and and use bits of it as data in some kind of historical or cultural reconstruction when mm. Tolkien wanted it to be read as poetry. Exactly, yes. He, he went right to the heart of the matter, didn't he? And, uh, and it was, the principles that he was bringing out there apply to, to lots of, um, of, of literary criticism and uh, how we approach it and uh, how elitist we can be in, in criticism instead of forgetting that, uh, that these, these are stories that which were meant to be enjoyed. <laughs> And, and meant to encourage people to be more virtuous and more courageous and so on. Excellent. Well, and face the dragons. Yes. <laughs> Dragon slaying is still a human duty. Um, That's right. <laughs> one of, well, we've, we've actually kind of uh, uh, edged over into uh, the next topic I wanted to take up. Um, one of the things that I've admired most about uh, this book was that you present not only a detailed historical account of the Inklings and their doings and their writings, but also pretty extended considerations of the kind of unifying tendencies or ideas that bound them together into at least some kind of uh, uh, 
movement towards a cohesive philosophy or worldview. They they still disagreed on many, many things, but there were some unifying elements that showed up in their works. Um, uh, for instance, uh, the, uh, the notion of romantic yearning or suspicion of chronological snobbery, things like that. Could you take up some of those tendencies? Yes, and I think that um, what's remarkable about it is, is that it grew out of the diversity of the, the group. They, they, weren't, they weren't following a manifesto. They didn't have a worked out one, which meant that they weren't basically ideological. Um, they, were, they were feeling their way as human beings, as people who wanted to write, who wanted to communicate to others, um, uh, bolstered up by their, by their Christian faith, which was, um, they saw in very varied ways. Um, they were acknowledging the richness of uh, Christian faith. Um, I mean, some of us, whoever reads the Inklings, some of us love preferences for one person's take on Christian faith um, more than another, say. You know, um, I mean, I, I'm from a Protestant background, so I'm probably more inclined towards Lewis, whereas a Roman Catholic reader, you know, might more warm more towards um, Tolkien, or, you know, if you like the esoteric, you might, you might be attracted by Barfield. And if you like the... Um, um, uh, the more gothic, um, you might go for Charles Williams, but somehow they they mesh together, and there's a, there's a core which Lewis um, called mere Christianity. Although I think one or two of them were were um, making the buttons pop out a bit sometimes. <laughs> um, and um, some of the things I think you've mentioned one of the most important ones, which was the 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 uh, yearning, the the um, inconsolable longing, which Lewis called joy, that's something that's featured very much in Tolkien as well as Lewis. Yeah. And I think that the others would have responded deeply to that as well, the other inklings, because they were all tuned in to, um, um, to the history of Romanticism. And one of them, Barfield, even said that he thought that um, the inklings represented a, a modern manifestation of the Romantic movement, you know, which, as you know, goes right back to the late poets Wordsworth and Coleridge, who used to live very close to where I am at this moment, and um, and uh, and many others like George MacDonald, particularly in the in the mid nineteenth century, that had such an influence on Lewis and Tolkien. Um, uh, and then there were other what they called romance elements or or um, deeply deeply er ex er experimental issues of human life, like um, for example, romantic love, which was a very um, big concern of um, of Charles Williams, mm. and he went right back to the medieval, the great medieval poet um, Dante and the and the Divine Comedy, um, and he, he um, in fact he did a lot to introduce the importance of Dante to the group, and it, several of them joined the Dante Society in Oxford University, and and and, and non-inklings as well. Um, Charles Williams was responsible for Dorothy Alsea's um, turning away from detective writing and um, various other things to translate uh, the Divine Comedy. Huh. Um, huh. She even learnt um, medieval Italian so that she could do it. She was she was very much a master of languages, but um, um, she did that, and um, um, and this was very much through the influence of of um, Charles Williams, to whom she did, uh, if I'm right, she dedicated her translation to to him. Um, so um, they, they, there's many themes, but they, they had something, all of them seemed to have something in common. And even their Christian faith, which, you know, after 2,000 years, 
people can get a bit tired about how they express that faith. You know, we you know, Christians have the creeds which help them to remain focused upon the basic doctrines. But the way that um, Tolkien uh, and Lewis saw, uh, say, the, the Bible and that, um, um, particularly the um, New Testament, the um, Gospel narratives, was very fresh. I mean, Tolkien persuaded Lewis to become a, a Christian and and shake off the last of his um, materialist, materialistic views um, on the grounds that um, uh, the, 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 the narratives of, of Christ, the historical records of Christ in, in the New Testament, um, had all the qualities of the fairy tale with the happy ending, but also um, had the, uh, the totally additional feature of um, actually taking place in real human history in the first century. So um, the striving of people, you know, the storytellers and that was to tell stories which were very definite and concrete to embody truths and ideas. Um, but here was actual human history, which was embodied all that um, people loved best in um, stories and all the hopes uh, of human beings. Um, so this was an amazing take upon um, basic Christianity that was, was in no way um, heretical. It was totally um, central to, um, to, to the essence of Christianity, that Jesus Christ was, was, was fully human as well as fully divine. So he was an ordinary bloke, you know, and he spoke ordinary used ordinary language. He didn't didn't go around with a, a very um, a kind of special holy voice or anything like that. And um, and he mixed with the the um, republicans and sinners, the marginalised in society, um, and yet without compromising his integrity as uh, as uh, as as the incarnate God as well. Mm-hmm. So I mean, these were all many examples, and you see this in the Narnian stories, of course, where. Um, through the figure of Aslan, you get a, an amazingly fresh take on um, the figure of Christ. Um, mm. uh, you know, you get this talking lion. Somehow, um, Lewis's creation um, helps us to see things in a totally fresh way. We, um, we can read the death of Aslan, and it can bring us to tears where we could sit in a church and hear the story of the crucifixion and be totally unmoved, you know, through familiarity. This is part of the... Um, uh, the re-enchantment, I think, um, but dealing with something that's fully true as well as, um, um, you know, just uh, not just stories, but um, stories in Lewis and Tolkien's view would be less focused. You know, they haven't, haven't got the full focus of truth, but nevertheless, they're a great gift and and part of the um, the kind of stories that they all loved. You mention uh, in your introduction to the book, and this is a note you pick up several times. Um, that uh, C.S. Lewis called himself a, a, a dinosaur, presented himself as a uh, an exhibit for you know modern man to look at and wonder. Um, but this idea of of contact with older ways of thinking, older ways of seeing the world, um, it seems to me connected too with uh, the notion of chronological snobbery, which uh, Lewis <laughs> Lewis brings up in his works. But if I remember correctly, that came out of a con- out of conversation with was it Owen Barfield? That's right. It's very early on in um, Lewis's development uh, when he was still very much an atheist. Um, mm. He became friends with Owen Barfield as when they were undergraduates together at Oxford, uh, uh, re- both reading English, and um, um, uh, and he was quite um, uh, appalled by the fact that that his friend Barfield, who had grown up in a, a, a very secular home. 
um, suddenly started turning towards the mystical um, and um, and and embraced the teachings of Rudolf Steiner of anthroposophy, and then started to try and persuade Lewis to abandon his materialism. <laughs> and so Lewis, in counter, to counter this, was trying to um, to say to Barfield that it was all a load of nonsense that he was getting into, and you know he was ruining everything. So they had what was what Lewis later called the Great War, where they were where they were opposed to each other and arguing. Um, to try and persuade each other to abandon their positions, <laughs> relative positions, and um, and it was during that long conversation that um, that Barfield persuaded Lewis that he, he was in the grip of chronological snobbery, the idea that anything new is automatically superior. The old, rather on the model of uh, you know a machine, when you you know if, when your washing machine gets a bit old and tired, you you get a new one, and ideas are like that in uh, you know in the modern view. That anything recently conceived or um, thought about is bound to be superior, and the way we do things is bound to be superior to um, people who lived 100 years ago or 500 years ago or more. And you have people saying that some, some kind of behaviour is positively medieval, you know, yeah. implying that it's uh, you know something that's uh, that's really barbaric and so on. Uh, whereas instead of saying something like, oh. That behavior is positively 21st century, you know, when we think of all the barbarity that's going on, uh, you know, around us in the Middle East and so on, and, uh, um, or, in, you know, in a, a school in the middle of America or Scotland or somewhere where somebody opens fire. Um, and um, so it, this was, I think that this was one of the biggest um, changes of perception that Lewis had because it helped him. To start to look to the past and what the insights of the past to help him to understand the present and to um, to live better as a person in the present and uh, and certainly it helped him to see things in new ways. Um, one of the culminations that was a book he wrote called um, The Discarded Image, where he he painted a, a marvelous um, portrait of the medieval way of, of imagining the universe and. Um, um, and and he brought he, he did it in such a way that it gave a perspective on our own ways of looking at the universe, and helping us to see that um, there's lots of things which may not necessarily be superior to um, what people believed in the medieval times, but actually could help us to to understand um, everything even with all our our new knowledge in a much better way. And uh, this book, which um, even though it's written by somebody from a humanities background, is remarkably relevant to history of science and to people who are who are working in in the sciences. And uh, that's, I think, a remarkable achievement. But it all results from Lewis's recognition that he was a chronological snob <laughs> when he was younger. <laughs> Excellent. Well. Uh... We are nearing the uh, the end of our time, and at the end of our Profiles interviews, we like to give our guests uh, a chance at the last word. So what about the Inklings in general, or this book in particular, would you like to leave our listeners with? The helm is yours, and you can take as much time as you like. Well, the, my book, The Oxford Inklings, um, came about as a result of um, many, many years of um, reading their books and thinking about them and getting a lot of things wrong and then gradually trying to sort them out and talking to um, to fellow um, Lewis and Tolkien um, scholars and fans and so on. Um, 
trying to understand the group uh, of these very, you know, very assorted people. And um, what my belief is that they, they help us enormously to see the world in a fresh way and to challenge our perceptions, intellectual perceptions and imaginative perceptions in a way that brings us out of ourselves so that we become, in Lewis's word, less parochial. Um, it's, it's related in, in Lewis's terms to, the, to Jesus' biblical teaching about um, it, uh, um, to gain yourself, you have to lose it. Mm. You have to die to yourself. And this is a principle that Lewis finds throughout human life. In knowledge, for example, you know, when, you, when you're learning as a, a child at school, you have to set aside, um, you have to surrender your own theories very often of um, how things are to receive the, the theories that are being told, taught to you by your, your teachers and by the, the books that you're reading. And it's by that kind of surrender that you grow. And when you read a, when you read a novel or any kind of um, book, you're, you're, um, you're surrendering to, to that book in order to receive it. And um, um, that doesn't stop, of course, you analyzing, but, but the primary experience is one of reception. And um, similarly with your friends, your, your friends have a different take on reality. They see the world in a different way to what you do, even if you're looking in the same direction and like, like the same kind of things. So by appreciating the other's way of seeing, you're taken away from yourself into the other. Mm. And behind that all, of course, is the supreme other, which is God himself who made the whole universe and who made us in his image so that we could be at least a little like him and uh, and be able to think and create and um, build relationships and all that kind of th th human thing. Excellent. Well, we've been talking uh, with Colin Durier, dear listeners, and I've certainly enjoyed this conversation, sir. And thank you for uh, mm -hmm. coming on to Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you. This is all we have time for, listeners. Uh, we've been speaking to Colin Durier about his book, The Oxford Inklings, Lewis, Tolkien, and Their Circle, published by Lion Hudson, which we'll link in the show notes when they post on the blog. You can comment on those show notes. Our blog is christianhumanist.org. You can also email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. I'm David Grubbs, host of this Christian Humanist Profiles interview. Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Be watching for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.